Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. June is Pride Month, and this year it's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots in Manhattan's Greenwich Village, when members of the LGBT community rebelled against police during a raid at the Stonewall Inn. That day in 1969 sparked the start of the gay liberation, or gay rights movement, a movement that continues today for individuals seeking equality, no matter their sexual orientation or gender identity. Today where we live, we're focusing on LGBTQ history in Connecticut. Did you know the longest continuously running LGBT radio program airs on the University of Hartford's radio station, WWUH? Coming up, we'll be joined by the host and producer of Gay Spirit Radio, Keith Brown. First, gay rights activism in Connecticut started before Stonewall. Joining us now with more is William J. Mann. He's an award-winning author and historian who was named the director of Central Connecticut State University's LGBT Center in 2018. And back in the 90s, he was co-publisher of Metroline, a former Hartford-based gay and lesbian news magazine. Uh, William's joining us via Skype. Uh, Thanks for joining us today, William. It's great to be here. In studio with us is Eve Galanis, a CCSU student who spent the past year working on a Connecticut LGBTQ history exhibit and digital timeline. It was a joint effort between the university and the Connecticut Historical Society. Uh, Eve, welcome to where we live. Hi, welcome. So I wanted to uh, start with William, who was your professor at one point, uh, Eve. Uh, William, before you became uh, director again of the LGBT Center at the university, uh, or since you've become a director, you've been working with the Connecticut Historical Society and students like Eve uh, about working on this timeline. So tell us uh, what, you know, what prompted the, the research project to begin. Well, I have to give credit to the uh, Connecticut Historical Society. It was their idea. Eileen Frank, who's the, the director, she came to me about a year ago and said, wouldn't it be great if we could actually put together a timeline of LGBT history in the state? And as it was happening, I was teaching a course that fall um, on on public history. And so I uh, turned the class into a a research team. And uh, we had an amazing, uh, amazing semester of discovery. Every student did outstanding work. And with the collaboration with the Historical Society, we're able to uh, tell some really important stories, unknown stories up until now, about LGBT people in Connecticut going back to the 17th century. That's really fascinating that uh, you were able to find information that far back. Eve Galanis, again, one of your students working on that project. So let's learn a little bit about um, some of what you uncovered, uh, Eve. Uh, going back to the colonial times, uh, what evidence was there of uh, gay and lesbians uh, in that time, in that era? So back in around 1656, um, the Connecticut colony and the New Haven colony were split up, and they had their own colonial puritanical laws um, regulating people and their behavior. So what we found that was really striking specifically was the 1656 New Haven statute that regulated, um, it said, if any man lieth with mankind as a man lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination and that they would be 
subjected to execution. Um, but what's interesting about that law more than any other sodomy law that you saw in the nation was that it's also regulated women's autonomy too. And it and explicitly had language in there to regulate um, men and women and their sexual expression and autonomy mm-hmm. in the world. Um, so you definitely see back in that time period more repressive laws um, regulating bodies. And what's also really interesting to note is that these sodomy laws weren't abolished until 1972 in Connecticut. So um, as archaic as they seem, mm-hmm. they're obviously not really. <laughs> so it's good to get some of that context. Uh, despite those laws, despite uh, the uh, the the punishment being death, if found to be in some type of same-sex uh, relationship. You did find evidence, letters, uh, going yes. back to the 1800s. Uh, tell us about what you found. Yeah, there were stories. I mean, obviously, despite a repressive society, there were people that found what we call um, romantic friendships. And and their evidence is in their letter writing to one another. So one really uh, striking story that our uh, fellow historian Christina Volpe found. Um, Addie Brown and Rebecca Primus were two African-American women living in Hartford and Farmington in the 1800s. And they had a very pointedly intimate relationship with one another that exceeded uh, platonic dynamics. Now, can we explicitly say that they were lesbians? No, obviously, because back then we didn't have... Uh, the same relationship with sexuality and gender as we do today. Um, so, but we can say that they did have a very deep, profound relationship. And so, uh, Addie Brown, she wrote to Primus, she says, What a pleasure it would be to address you, my husband. Mm-hmm. So, clearly, it was, you know, more than just a, a simple friendship. So you mentioned these letters. Where were they uncovered? I believe they're at the Connecticut Historical Society archives, right, Dr. Mann? That's right. That's right. And that and uh, Brigadier General Griffin Alexander Studman, um, a decorated Union soldier from Hartford, he also exchanged letters with a man, uh, Charles Jeremy Hoadley, um, and they also had a really intimate relationship. So yeah. Uh, William, uh, you have uh, quite uh, a career uh, as a writer. You've written about gay Hollywood. Um, Tell us about the uh, emerging gay culture uh, that was coming uh, to Connecticut in the arts and stage community. I understand actress Mae West debuted a play in Bridgeport with an all-gay cast. Uh, That's right. And and, and as Eve points out, that it's it's important not to um, overlay uh, contemporary definitions onto these people. Uh, this was, um, uh, y- you know, the construct of being a homosexual or a lesbian or, or transgender it didn't exist yet. But at the same time, the evidence shows that these people existed, even if um, they wouldn't have thought of themselves in that way. And certainly the relationships existed. And what happened with Connecticut was that we were a bit, you know, we were, we weren't New York, we weren't Boston or Los Angeles or Chicago. So we had to wait in some ways for uh, some of that more um, uh, personally identifiable culture to come to us. And so we begin to see that in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, the Harlem Renaissance was taking place in New York, which was a, a flowering of African-American and largely LGBT 
culture. Um, we see uh, people like uh, Count A. Cullen coming into the Wadsworth Athenaeum. Absolutely, Mae West came to to debut her her play, The Drag, in Bridgeport, um, which had an all gay cast, and which and her and West's stated intention was to um, un- uncover truths about people's lives. So. This is the way Connecticut began to be exposed to um, this this growing self-affirming identity of gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Uh, William Mann, again, is an award-winning author and historian, uh, director of Central Connecticut State University's LGBT Center. Uh, Today, here on Where We Live, as we learn more about the LGBT history uh, of our state, Eve Galanis is also here. Uh, She's a former student of Mann's, but also uh, currently working on uh, her history degree at the university. She helped uh, with this research of the Connecticut LGBTQ history exhibit and digital timeline. We're going to have information coming up about where uh, you can uh, see this exhibit uh, just in just a few minutes. But you mentioned uh, the Wadsworth, uh, William. Uh, Tell us uh, more about Chick Austin and his role in bringing uh, certain uh, writers and uh, artists uh, to uh, this region, including they even held a gala night. Well, they certainly wouldn't have called it a gala night at the time, though, um, or, or if they did, the word didn't have the same connotation that it has today. But yes, Chick Austin was a uh, a risk-taking, very progressive uh, artistic director at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, um, brought in a lot of uh, ideas and voices that you know were, were being heard regularly in the larger cities, and, and that way um, exposed Connecticut to a lot of these ideas. Uh, the night you're referring to was actually um, a uh, uh, an opera written by Gertrude Stein, who was very undisguised about being a lesbian. She she wrote a book called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which was, uh, Alice B. Toklas was her wife, which she called her her wife. Um, so it, the, the opera is written by Gertrude Stein. It's, it's uh, uh, the, the uh, music is by Virgil Thompson, who also was an undisguised gay man. And it's directed by um, just... Uh, Eva Jesse, who was a, a notable figure from the Harlem Renaissance with an all-black cast. It's this incredibly queer, uh, his, you know, hysterically funny at times, uh, very um, uh, subversive take on sainthood. And uh, it, it was it was hugely received. I mean, Hartford came out um, in in droves to see this, and it got great reviews. And there it is at the Wadsworth Athenaeum. This this incredibly queer performance by undisguised queer people, uh, and in, that's 1934, I believe. Mm. Uh, Eve, when you were doing your research along with uh, other students, uh, because of the um, you know, beliefs at the time, because of the laws that were still in place, you know, how difficult was it for this history to be uncovered? Um, one of the things that Dr. Mann told us basically in the beginning of the semester was that we were going to face some challenges because this history was designed to be hidden. It was not intended to be shown to the world. Um, So it did take on an investigative quality to it. Um, And there were times where, you know, we had to rely on oral histories and people who actually were there and lived these experiences or knew somebody who lived or, you know, had a family member that, that had experienced something. Um, So, and so, you know, sometimes we would have trouble getting in contact with people. Um, I know from my research, because I was focused on in the fall semester on mental health treatment of LGBTQ individuals. Uh, so 
I had my own challenges of being denied access to certain records and um, so it did it did have some difficulties more so than any other history I've ever researched but it was all the more gratifying when you did find something. Uh, what's really remarkable about the uh, anecdote you told us, these love letters between these two African-American women, uh, Addie Brown and Rebecca Primus, uh, when we think about um, you know, same-sex relationships, uh, was it difficult to find any evidence, uh, you were able to find these letters, but of uh, people who weren't gay white men? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had an intention right from the beginning of of basically going into this research with an intersectional framework, uh, meaning that we were looking at uh, converging and diverging identities and and how power would interact with them. Um, So, yeah, we made it a goal right from the beginning that we didn't want to just focus on the stories of, you know, gay white men. Um, But that is the dominant narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And so it that also was a challenge to find diverse uh, stories. But we did. We did find some. Um, it, another challenge, I'd say, especially in particular with looking at gender nonconformity, uh, non-binary, transgender, um, you know, the further back you go, the more difficult it is to uncover. I remember we were asking for photos of, I forget which uh, transgender organization in Connecticut, we asked them for photos and they said, well, we don't have photos prior to 2000 because people were afraid to be photographed for their own safety. So that does pose a challenge in documenting the history. Mm Uh, Eve, you had mentioned uh, you know doing uh, research uh, into uh, the uh, mental history of LGBTQ yeah. uh, individuals. Um, you know that was a downside for people who uh, did come out, uh, so to speak, because they were treated as having uh, mental or personality disorders. Yeah. So tell us about again a little bit about you know how you were able um, to track some of those records down at some of the institutions that are still or facilities that are still in existence here in the state. Yeah. So I specifically focused on the mid-20th century when mental, uh, when sexuality and gender nonconformity was treated as a mental illness. So I initially focused on two institutions, the Institute of Living in Hartford and Connecticut Valley Hospital in Middletown because they're some of the oldest hospitals in the nation. And so I figured that I would have a plethora of information. Then uh, I knew that I was going to have a challenge just from you know, the fact that I was going to be denied medical records. And I knew that, and that's fine. Uh, But I didn't realize how much much of a challenge it would be to find information from from these organizations, these facilities. Institute of Living did meet with me. There was someone that did meet with me and have an interview. um, And they corroborated that people were treated there for, uh, quote-unquote, sexual deviation, as they called it at the time. and that they were treated with medication, electroshock therapy, and sometimes lobotomies. I could not validate these with the sources because I could not get access to their archives, which is on site. And at CVH, um, the challenge with them is that DEMAS, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, uh, doesn't have the funding to continue their historical preservation Mm -hmm. of CVH. And as well as understaffing 
at the hospital, I anticipated not getting in touch with anybody, and I, I didn't. Uh, so I was kind of left to my own devices, to which I went to the state library, and if they're listening, thank you. <laughs> um, but they, they really helped, and so I looked at the governor's records and the Department of Mental Health records. In the Department of Mental Health, I found uh, information that in 1956 in the state of Connecticut, any sexuality or gender nonconformity was classified as Again, sexual deviation, which was a personality disorder, and it was treated as such. I also found in that document um, they were talking explicitly about children and children that exhibited this kind of behavior and their conversion therapy treatment process, which included 24-hour one-to-one supervision for the child. Mm. And obviously we know as of 2017 that's been banned in Mm -hmm. Connecticut. Uh, William, again, these are really uh, interesting, uh, interesting facts and stories that your students have been able to uncover through this project. Um, when we think about the mental health treatment uh, of some individuals uh, during this time, uh, were there people that you, you or other students were able to interview that maybe uh, went uh, through such treatment uh, when their families uh, found out that um, you know they may be gay or lesbian? Absolutely, there were people um, who went through these uh, these experiences. I know in my own work, um, it, when, I've, uh, when I was doing my research onto the, uh, into gay Hollywood, I, I interviewed many people who had been subjected to uh, conversion therapies, um, even in, in what, what, what is called, to, considered now to, today to be torture. Um, there was also, um, during this period of time, there was, uh, um, in, in, as well as being institutionalized, people were losing their jobs. Uh, there was a purge of all uh, gay employees of the State Department. Uh, there was um, a, a purge of the army. So this is the 1950s. Eva was very, very wise to focus her research on the 1950s and the early 1960s, because this is, this is the darkest period in LGBT history in many ways. Um, this is the period where uh, people were routinely fired, discriminated against, harassed, arrested, and institutionalized. Um, so this was, uh, it's the, that's the darkest period. But of course, it comes right before the the breaks in the 1960s. Mm. Uh, before uh, we head to break, uh, there is a a story that I wanted to highlight from the timeline project. Uh, you'd mentioned uh, uh, the army, uh, William. Uh, there's an uh, individual, Edward Spires of Norwalk. Mm-hmm, yes. uh, Eve, can you tell us uh, what happened to him? So after World War II. Um, once, if the government found out that someone was homosexual serving in the military, they were given uh, what are called blue discharges or dishonorable discharges because of being homosexual. So uh, in 2017, at the age of 91, Edward Spires sued the federal government to have that dishonorable discharge uh, changed, removed, revoked, uh, so that he could have a military funeral um, once he had passed. Uh, I looked in last night. I was looking in to find out like what what's happened since, mm-hmm. um, and I couldn't find anything. But I will say that the Yale Law School contributed to the case, and he won. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and, and Yale Law School is actually working um, to with individuals that have experienced the same thing as as uh, Spires. Mm-hmm. It, Grant, it's uh, important to remember uh, these uh, these moments in history. Uh, William, how do you talk to your students about uh, context uh, happening today, uh, specifically under the Trump administration and uh, their decisions of uh, enlisted uh, individuals who are transgender? 
Yeah, you know, it, what's so disturbing right now is that this is the first time in history where a group of people have been extended rights and then had them taken back. That's never happened before. Uh, transgender service service people were um, given the right to serve openly in the U.S. Uh, military under President Obama and now under the Trump administration. There are all sorts of attempts to roll those rights back. Uh, this is really the first time where rights have been extended and then taken away. It's, it's really... Um, it's very disturbing because we often think of history as being um, a series of of progress. Um, that the, the the arc of justice, um, you know, is is long, but it, it does the it does bend towards um, the arc of history does bend towards justice. And I, I want to believe that, but this is this is a dark period right now, and we have to be uh, vigilant. We have to look at what's happening, and um, and I think understanding history the way. Uh, my students were able to do in the, in the last year uh, has given them a perspective on what is happening today because what happened in the past could happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eve Galanis, again, it was a pleasure to learn a little bit of the extensive research that you've done. Yeah, we appreciate you coming you. in. Oh, really quick before I go, um, I want to mention that we are actually launching uh, the CHS website, um, which will have the digital timeline, will be more comprehensive, and people around Connecticut can contribute um, their own personal stories uh, to make this an ongoing process. So yeah, thank you very much for having me. Well, good to hear it. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, my guest, William Mann, who's a director of the CCSU LGBT Center, will stay with us um, as we continue to talk about the gay rights movement here in Connecticut. After the break, we're going to learn more about how the community worked to gain acceptance and equality in the state. Are you a member of the LGBTQ community? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Can they be that close? Just let me stay for the record. We're giving love. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the LGBTQ community in Connecticut 50 years after the Stonewall riots in 1969. Now, just yesterday, it was announced a monument will be put up in Greenwich Village to commemorate early LGBT rights activists, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, two trans women of color who were leaders in what was then called the Gay Liberation Front. My guest today uh, via Skype, uh, William Mann, award-winning author and historian who was named the director of CCSU's LGBT Center in 2018. And then in the 90s, he was co-publisher of of Metroline, a former Hartford-based gay and lesbian news magazine. And joining us now in studio is Keith Brown, who's a longtime producer and host of the Gay Spirit radio program on WWUH 91.3 FM. That's the University of Hartford's uh, radio station. Keith, welcome to our show. Yes, good morning. And William's joining us uh, via Skype today. Now, I understand, Keith, your show is America's longest continuously running LGBTQ radio show. Uh, You helped put Gay Spirit on the air back in 1980. Then you became uh, host and producer in 1983. Uh, So how did it all start? Oh, I am convinced that it's the longest continuously broadcast radio program of its kind. Uh, There should be uh, another radio show on the West Coast, IMRU, Mm. on Pacifica Radio out of uh, Los Angeles. That show, if I remember correctly, was founded in 1973, 
uh, but was not continuous in broadcast. When Gay Spirit Radio began its broadcasts, Thanksgiving of 1980, those broadcasts have been continuous week by week on Thursday evenings ever since. (laughs) Well, congratulations. That's quite a feat. Uh, One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show, besides to talk about uh, Gay Spirit Radio, uh, we wanted to know more about the the history of uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, So often the attention is on uh, Stonewall and after. But you were actually part of an organization uh, called the Kalos Society before Stonewall. Tell us about what is that? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Now, that was an organization that I partly founded in October of 1968 um, through the uh, good graces of the Reverend Canon Clinton R. Jones, counselor to the sexual minorities. Uh, He was the resident counselor here in, in Hartford for the George W. Henry Foundation of New York City. And uh, his counseling service to the sexual minorities was out of uh, um, his uh, office at Christ Church Cathedral, that beautiful old Gothic church mm-hmm. on Main Street here in uh, downtown Hartford. And so, Carlos, what does that mean? Yes. Now, the long <laughs> story about this. Yeah, I, keep it, named, keep it short, Keith. <laughs> I named the organization. Okay. Um, and uh, it draws upon... Uh, ancient Greek history of uh, the word. It's an adjective in uh, classical Greek. Or it, it could mean good, shining, as is a shining example, a beautiful and noble. And this uh, word uh, was uh, used on the Kilix cup, uh, a kind of um, trothing cup between um, uh, gay male lovers in ancient Athens. It was uh, a custom. Well, you, you know, it is said that, um, that there, uh, two, two young men were like brothers. They were so close uh, that they drank from the same cup. Well, uh, there was a kind of trothing ritual, so we understand, where uh, gay male lovers would pledge their troth using the Kilix drinking cup, and uh, and the name of the lover would be inscribed upon the cup with that word kalos uh, after it. There are many examples yeah. of these of these porcelain drinking cups and uh, so, that survive. So I, we understand what kalos means. Uh, then it, you added Gay Liberation Front to the name. Uh, tell us why in 1971. Yeah. Well, the organization became radicalized. I was partly um, uh, uh, partly one of the people that helped radicalize the organization after 1969 uh, and the, um, and the uh, Stonewall uh, riots in, in New York City. Um, it, Two of our Firebrand members, Ken Ron and Ron Malvin, joined the organization later on. Um, uh, 1968 through 1969 or or so, uh, they came in on the organization a little later and became our two most... uh, active members. So when you say organization, was this a social group or you felt like it was a good, you needed support? What was it like to be a gay man back then? In October of 1968, it began as maybe a group therapy session for some of Canon Jones' gay counselees. Um, uh, One of the three founding members 
um, uh, Harry Williams wanted it primarily as group therapy. Uh, the, the, the other guy, Ken Malvin, he thought of it more as a, um, as a social group. I wanted it to be a political organization. And uh, later on, um, uh, it became radicalized through Ken and Ron's work. And then my colleague, uh, who was associated with the Gay Liberation Front in, in New York City, um, uh, he, uh, he and I, we further radicalized the organization, and we got it to uh, alter the name to Color Society GLF, Color Society Gay Liberation Front mm. of, of Hartford. So tell us what some of the activities were uh, that you were involved in. So after Stonewall, uh, you know, demonstrations, uh, uh, seeking uh, equality, civil rights uh, for the community. But even here in Hartford, there were some protests. I believe yes. one outside the La Rosa Park West Restaurant in Hartford. Yeah, it, it was on um, Park Street in, in Hartford in, in the Parkville neighborhood. Uh, it was a kind of women's bar, a lesbian bar, but they had a strict a dress code, and women were supposed to dress uh, 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 appropriately. I, I think they wanted to keep the butch lesbians out of the bar. The the uh, jack-booted butch lesbians that wore the bib overalls and that kind of thing, they were an embarrassment. Uh, but we say they needed to change the dress code and began to picket the place mm-hmm. outside. Uh, I was in the picket line for one of several nights. The night after I was on, Everybody got arrested. <laughs> so what happened after that protest? No more uh, dress code? Uh, uh, no. Uh, we, leaned, uh, we leaned upon uh, the owner-manager of the place, and eventually she did change the dress code. You're hearing, uh, again, Keith Brown, who's a longtime producer and host of Gay Spirit Radio program on WWUH. It's 91.3 FM uh, at the University of Hartford. We're learning more about the history of activism uh, in the LGBTQ community here in our state. Uh, joining us via Skype is William Mann, uh, who is director of Central Connecticut State University's LGBT Center. And uh, he was also co-publisher of Metroline, a former Hartford-based gay and lesbian news magazine uh, for a period in the 90s. Um, I was wondering, William, if you could talk about some of the other, um, from your project with the Connecticut Historical Society, some of the other activities the Collis Society was involved in. I think there was one protest in Bridgeport that same year. Yes, there was. And and that's significant in that it was um, it was a, a protest against police brutality and police harassment uh, of LGBT people. Um, you know, at listening to Keith speak, I I, I I'm struck again by how progressive Connecticut was. I mean, we're, we're, uh, Kalos predates Stonewall. You know, there, this was an organization that, um, you know, did found it was founded as a social group or as a therapy group, but it quickly becomes political after Stonewall, uh, and and immediately starts these kind of um, these kind of actions. We don't see that in many other states around the country, certainly not a state as small as Connecticut. So that's that's really um, uh, significant, and and it's a moment in history as I tell my students that um, before Stonewall, LGBT history is there. You just have to learn to mm-hmm. read between the lines without reading into them. That's my my, my um, advice to my students. Make sure you can read between the lines because the history is there. It's just not written down explicitly, but you can't read into it either because then you're reading into a, in con- contemporary uh, ideas and con- uh, concepts. Um, but after Stonewall, uh, you know, as, as Keith points out, uh, 
gay experience, gay life becomes radicalized. Mm -hmm. And we see these sorts of protests, whether they be in Hartford at a bar or at the uh, in uh, Bridgeport at the um, police station in the mayor's office. Um, this it, it, Stonewall changes everything. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the early 80s that Connecticut actually had its first gay pride rally. Uh, Keith, were you there? Uh, yeah, and I'm thinking that people wore masks at this that is at time. the uh, the grounds of the old state house. Yeah, yeah, to protect their identity, uh, certain people wore masks. And William, what can you tell us about that day and who 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 went? We, it was it was a, a group of people. I think there was a couple of hundred people. And you have to remember how brave these people are. Yes, many of them were were mer- wearing masks, um, and that's that's a practice that endured up until the nineteen late nineteen eighties. I remember my first rallies; people were wearing masks. I was part of the Connecticut Coalition for Lesbian, Gay, Civil Rights, and we we actually passed out masks to people to wear um, because you could lose your job. This was this wasn't um, this wasn't simply oh I don't want to be known as gay. You could lose your job. You could be you could be arrested. You. you you could lose your family. Um, it was a real serious step to take if you were going to come out to a gay pride rally. And the fact that 200, 300 people did year after year after year, getting bigger all the time, really uh, speaks to the uh, the need and the desire to claim authentic identities. Uh, today here on Where We Live, uh, we're learning more about LGBTQ history in Connecticut. My guest, William Mann, who's director of the LGBT Center at Central Connecticut State University, joining us via Skype. And Keith Brown, who's a longtime producer and host of the Gay Spirit Radio program on WWUH. Uh, William, you mentioned that uh, you know Connecticut was still pretty progressive compared to other states at that time. Uh, there were efforts uh, to pass a gay rights law before the General Assembly, and that had to come up uh, time and time again. Uh, but then there was something that happened to a young man, uh, Richard Ryle in Wethersfield. Uh, what happened to him? 1988. He was murdered. Uh, and I, re- I remember this very vividly because I had just come out myself. And and uh, the story of Richard Ryle being murdered in Wethersfield um, by two teenagers um, from South Catholic High School, um, uh, clearly a hate crime. Uh, the, the confession read that, you know, we realized he was queer. He had to die. Um, it galvanized the state. Uh, you know, uh, there were no more masks after Richard Ryle's death. I remember the some of those rallies right afterwards, candlelight vigils, and I remember people saying, um, you know, maybe we should start with a prayer and bowing our heads. And Liz Toledo, who was an activist at the time, uh, she looked at us and said, I'm not bowing my head. And we all said, no, no more bowing our heads. We we, we were angry. A man had died. And 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 after he died, the the initial response from the Catholic Church and from civic leaders was, well, you know, the, these two boys that killed him, they were good boys, mm. and uh, you know, this was something that galvanized the state into, um, you know, we 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 see the Connecticut uh, uh, anti anti violence project uh, form after this, and we had we had people at the trial at, at the hearings for uh, for the killers. Um, it was it was a moment. It was a turning point, and that was the point where. Um, more and more people came out. And from there, we begin to see things really beginning to change. Mm. Keith, what do you remember about that time? Uh, William mentioning that the community was so galvanized that people felt comfortable coming out in support and being their true self. You were someone who came out uh, uh, in the 60s. And so how did that, the climate change, how did you see it change? Oh, I, I came out in high school, Newington High School in 1965, wearing the scarlet letter H, which was... Um, of which I, uh, which was inspired by the scarlet letter A, uh, Hester Prynne's 
um, uh, stigma right from the famous novel. Was it risky for you at the time to do that that way? Uh, It turned out not to be. No, Uh, I um, uh, I guess. Uh, I, I could have been uh, assaulted, but uh, no, nobody ever bothered me about it. Wore it for about three weeks, made my point, and then uh, went on uh, to uh, found a sexual liberation front with my uh, GLF colleague, uh, Ron Carrier, on the University of Hartford campus. That was about the time that I sought counseling from the George W. Henry Foundation, which led to the founding of Kalos Society. Yeah. When uh, you heard about what happened to Richard Ryle in 1988, uh, tell us what went through your mind. Oh, um, yeah, I, I'd already seen or um, read about many instances of this prior to this. But that the founder of Gaysport Radio, uh, Rob Meehan, it was his policy not to cover sensational crimes of violence. And so uh, Gaysport Radio did not uh, cover the Ryle case of course, it was um, a Bill Mann and Metroline magazine that took that up. And remember that uh, that the Richard Ryle murder case got a lot of publicity, um, a, a lot of coverage in, in the Hartford Current. So Gaysport yes. Radio didn't need to do that. Well, we were more interested in community organizing and community events and covered those things yeah. more intensively. Well, since you mentioned, again, uh, William Mann, who's with us, uh, who was uh, the uh, co-publisher of Metro Line, you were covering this story, but you were also um, instrumental in, in helping change some minds as uh, the state legislators were looking uh, to whether or not they should pass a gay rights bill uh, in 1991. What happened there? Will, uh, are, are you talking about the uh, the church? Yes, with the church <laughs> and changing some minds on uh, some of the people lobbying well, against the bill. I, I, I had a, I had a meeting with um, with Father Tom Barry, who was the Archbishop's um, liaison or, or his his uh, publicity person, or his, I'm not sure exactly what his title was. And um, we sat down, and the church had been adamantly opposed to. Um, so, you know, against the gay rights bill, or even at this point, adding hate crimes legislation to um, uh, to include sexual orientation. And I remember meeting with Father Barry and saying to him, "Listen, I was brought up Catholic, and I'm looking at the church, and and they're telling me that my life doesn't matter, that Richard Rowell's life doesn't matter, that you know, that sexual orientation doesn't deserve to be included in hate crimes protections." And I'm not saying that I convinced him, but I think I think he saw it in a more personal level at that point. And and there was a uh, there was kind of a um, an opening, a dialogue that the the archbishop's office was able to then talk with the Connecticut, Connecticut Coalition for Lesbian and Gay Civil Rights and work out a plan by which when the gay rights bill came up, the church um didn't endorse it, but also no longer opposed it. And that was in 1991 that then-Governor Weicker signed that bill into law. That's right. Uh, After that happened, uh, did we see uh, lawmakers uh, uh, publicly coming out, William? Well, actually, it happens before that. Actually, Joe Graybars, um, State Representative Joe Graybars from Bridgeport, uh, comes out um, in the buildup for the uh, the gay rights bill, and his personal story has a huge impact 
on on the legislature legislature to say that oh this is you know we know a gay person and that he works among us right after that Leslie Brett who was the chairman for the uh, Connecticut Human Rights um, uh, uh, Commission she also comes out as a lesbian and this is this is huge too because she's somebody that that everyone respects and has been working with them for years I, those two coming out stories greatly impact the um, the um, the passage of the bill I should also add that part of the part of the uh, the pressure was amped up by a group of 12 activists who disrupted Governor, then Governor O'Neill's speech because he absolutely refused to uh, support the bill and, and said he would always, he would he would veto anything that was passed. Um, and that disruption of his um, his speech really left uh, an impact. People said, "Well." Um, you know, these people mean business and this is this is uh, this is serious stuff. And the combination of all of those things is what um, is what led the bill to be passed. William Manigan is a CCSU professor and head of its LGBT center um, here on Where We Live with Keith Brown, longtime producer and host of the Gay Spirit Radio Program on WWH 91.3 FM. We're going to hear a little of his theme song as we head into break, and we're going to talk more about uh, the movement for uh, rights for LGBTQ individuals uh, in Connecticut. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. When we were born, they tried to cover our eyes. Then they tried to tell us all what to see. We are discovering that did not work. For we were born to be free. It's a gay spirit singing in our hearts, leading us through these troubled times. It's a gay spirit moving land calling us to a time of open love when we were born they tried to put us all in a cage then tell our bodies what to feel we have chosen to feel all the truth Gay spirit singing in our hearts, leading us through these troubled times. It's a gay spirit moving round this land, calling us to a time of open love. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today, Keith Brown, longtime producer and host of the Gay Spirit Radio Program on WWUH 91.3 FM, and William Mann, who's Central Connecticut State University's uh, director of its LGBT Center. He's also a professor there. Uh, Keith, that uh, we'd be remiss not to mention, uh, you know, during all of these years of progress towards acceptance and equality, uh, the community was also dealing uh, with the AIDS crisis, and many uh, prominent members of the gay community um, passing. You've interviewed some of them. Can you tell us about those individuals? Yeah, it was a topic that we covered, certainly, of the 1980s and uh, 1990s. Yeah, and uh, so many people I knew from, from that era, unfortunately, now are, are uh, de- deceased. Mm. Yeah, um, oh, um, uh, we need to give, uh, before we go any further, a credit 
uh, to Richard Nelson for his a timeline that that preceded the one that's now on display at the uh, Connecticut uh, Historical Society. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of names of mm. people, um, AIDS activists, mm. uh, that um, I had dealt with. Oh, there's um, uh, Ken Brown, for instance, um, a local openly gay man and um, a professional singer, uh, uh, I believe. He was on. Um, uh, he had been on the air. Um, uh, he Victor, was with Act yeah. Up. And Victor DeLugan, am and, I saying his name? Yes, right? Victor DeLugan, yes, uh, a professor of um, a political science at University of uh, Hartford, and um, a, a kind of mentor to Bill Mann. Absolutely. He was he was one of my dearest friends and um, shaped my my political view of the world um, and my husband, uh, uh, Tim Huber's view of the world. And, and there was a you know, there was a period of time, as Keith says, that so many of them are gone. We lost an entire generation. Um, so many people in the generation right above me are gone. There should be so many more gay men who uh, there should be so many more of them, but they're they're gone. And so, um, thank God we have Keith and others who who tell us about those times because it's a big gap in understanding history because we've lost so many people. I think of it as our Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask again, with all the progress that's been made, not only in Connecticut, but in other states around our country, uh, you know, there's still uh, efforts to uh, help with protections of transgender uh, residents. Is this something that Connecticut needs to work on or are we in a good place, William? Well, I'm very proud that Connecticut passed uh, the transgender rights law in 2011. So, and again, we were one of the first states to do that. Um, it's 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 significant that when the gay rights bill was passed, uh, it did not include transgender people. Uh, so, this was a bill that was needed um, to to cover uh, gender identity and gender expression. Uh, transgender people right now are the ones on the on the front lines, and they're the ones uh, they're the ones being most targeted. So, um, it is a uh, a concern and is something we have to continue to look at because um, trans lives need to be seen as valuable and we, they need to be um, integrated into our into our culture, into our universities. Um, thankfully, at, at, at CCSU, um, our president has made it very clear that she values trans lives and we've had several um, uh, uh, expressions of that. We had the Transgender Day of Remembrance uh, last November. We'll do that again for those trans people who have been killed by anti-trans violence. Um, it is it is the, um, the, the letter in the acronym LGBT that right now is getting the most focus, and we need to make sure that we are as supportive of that as we've been all of the other letters. At the same time, again, uh, many uh, pride celebrations throughout the month of June, not only in uh, our state, but across the nation, uh, in Canada, in the UK, but there are places around the world where it's still uh, very dangerous to be out. Don't be in Uganda. I can tell you that much. Um, yeah. Can more be done uh, by Americans uh, to help uh, you know, individuals uh, who are in, in countries where uh, they could face imprisonment or death, William? Oh, absolutely. I think I think we need to lead by example. But we also need to look at our own country, too. I mean, there are places in this country where um, LGBT people are still um, uh, 
oppressed. And uh, if we look at the, the the rates of new AIDS infections, men who, men who have sex with men in, in the South, particularly black men, um, the rates are going up again. So we need to look at that. We need to look at even around the world, but also right here in our own country, that um, this has not been won by any, any stretch of the imagination. There are still challenges every day. William J. Mann, again, is award-winning author and historian, uh, director of Central Connecticut State University's LGBT Center, a uh, former co-publisher of Metroland. This is a former Hartford-based gay and lesbian news magazine. Thank you so much for joining us via Skype today, William. It's great to be here. Again, we're going to have information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, to that uh, great history project that uh, William Mann's students, in collaboration with Connecticut Historical Society, uh, have been working on. And in studio with us is Keith Brown, longtime producer and host of the Gay Spirit Radio Program. I should mention it's on... Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. at 91.3. If you want to hear uh, Keith again, uh, America's longest continuously running LGBTQ radio program. Thanks so much, Keith, for your time. Well, thank you so much, Lucy. <laughs> Today's show produced by Scott Breedy. Uh, thanks to Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. And have a great weekend.